soul in sad exile was out on life's sea. So burdened with sin and distress, till I heard a sweet voice saying, make me your choice. And I entered the heaven of rest. I've anchored my soul in the heaven of rest. I'll sail the wide seas no more. The tempest may sweep o'er the wild stormy deep. In Jesus, I'm safe evermore. I yielded myself to his tender embrace. In faith, taking hold of the word, my fetters fell off and I Savior, he patiently waits to save by his power divine. Come, anchor your soul in the haven of rest and say, my beloved is mine. I've my soul in the heaven of rest. I'll sail the wide seas no more. The tempest may sweep o'er the wild stormy deep. In Jesus I'm safe Jesus, I'm safe evermore. Praise the Lord. Well, that's a wonderful place to be, the haven of rest. Amen. In the hands and the hands of our Lord. Turn to Psalm chapter 126, if you would. 126. We're going to begin uh, reading verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's all six verses. Yeah, some of you are getting nervous. I think we're in Isaiah or something, you know. We'll be uh, done after about an hour and a half of reading. No, but anyway, six verses. That's all we're going to look at. I'm going to give you a little background on those verses and then make a very brief application today. We are. We're coming up quickly on our tent meeting. That's going to be coming up in two weeks from today. Next week we'll be in here, and then the following week we'll be, we'll be outside under the tent. We're looking forward to that, and so actually the next two Sunday mornings, I'm going to be kind of doing some preparation, trying to prepare us 
as a people for being under the tent for the week. And again, the teenagers, they have their camp and they get to go away for a week. We don't get to go away as adults necessarily to camp like that, but we are going to have an opportunity to get away for a week and to really let the Holy Spirit work on us as every evening we'll have an opportunity to hear some preaching. We'll have an opportunity to be impacted and influenced by the man of God that will be coming uh, Dr. Dennis Coral, and he'll do a fabulous job. And then on Friday night, we're going to close it down. Brother Coral couldn't be with us on Friday. He has to get to his next stop. And so we're going to have Brother Earl Ankrum with us just to close it down and to kind of hammer shut everything, which you know he's going to tear it up. If you've been around, you know uh, that. He wasn't here last year with us, but wait, two years ago for sure he was. I know that for sure. And uh, was he here last year? Oh, I had him come for one night, didn't I? Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, then you didn't forget him. I just did. I'm trying to. No, I'm teasing. You're going to love it. He, he's a powerful preacher, man. Let me tell you, he don't mix words, okay? But anyway, he'll close her down on Friday for us. And then the, uh, the Spanish-speaking are going to have the tent Saturday night, and then they're going to have it Sunday morning, and then we'll all be back together outside on a Sunday night to close it all down. And uh, that night, uh, Brother Rigo doesn't know it yet, but he's going to translate for me. So he'll, I'll be speaking in English, he'll be translating in Spanish, and we'll have all of us connected together, the Spanish-speaking us, all of us under the one tent for that final service on Sunday night, which will be an interesting service, right? You'll get a little bit of a feel of what it's like on the mission field. All right, Psalm chapter 126, beginning in verse 1. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing, then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> I asked you to fill me with your spirit. I have nothing to offer this thy people except you give it to me. I am a needy preacher today. Oh God, I, uh, I believe that what we're going to hear we need. We need to be prepared and readied for the future. But Lord, we want to really drink in and take in what you have for us. Lord, may we not allow distractions uh, to hinder our opportunities to hear and to heed. I pray, Lord, that you would just bind the devil and keep him from us today so that we can hear those things which we need to. And may you, Father, just anoint every listening ear that they would hear with spiritual ears. We know, Father, that you are the key. No one came here to hear me. They've come here to hear, hear you, to meet with you. And Lord, you know that's the way it ought to be. And I just pray, dear God, that we would. We'd meet with you in a very special way this morning. Now be glorified in everything that's said and done. And Lord, if there be those that are have yet to invite Christ into their life as Lord and Savior. They have yet to settle their soul salvation. I pray that they would settle that today before it's eternally too late. And for we believers that are gathered here, Lord, may we truly humble ourselves and surrender ourselves, submitting ourselves fully to you and having the mind of Christ. We love you. We need you. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Right off the bat in verse 1, we read, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream." Exactly what captivity the writer's speaking about, we're not really sure. We don't know what he's exactly describing. Some have pointed to the miraculous deliverance that the children of Israel had experienced out of Egypt. 
Some have said it had to do with Sennacherib's army, that 185,000 strong army that overnight the, 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 the Lord went in and destroyed all 185,000 and delivered the city from famine and the carnage and the death that they had been enduring. Or whether uh, it points to possibly even the Babylonian captivity. We know that they went into captivity and for 70 years Israel was bound there in captivity and God ultimately provided them the opportunity to return and an opportunity to rebuild the walls and to establish their worship again and uh, uh, just to rebuild the temple and city. Either way, there was a great deliverance that took place and that's exactly what the psalmist is addressing and dealing with. He goes on to say, we were like them that dream, he says. Dreams are kind of like mirages. You know, you've seen uh, possibly in a show or something, someone's out in the midst of the desert and they, they think they see an oasis of water and, and just uh, beautiful greenery, but in reality, it's not true. The closer they get to that mirage, it seems to fade. And dreams are pleasant enough while we're uh, enjoying them or while they last, but they fade quickly after we awake, right? Soon the dream's forgotten. The impression that it made melts away. The reality of life kind of sets back in again, right? Well, they said we were like them that dreamed. What they were saying is the reality was so good that it seemed unbelievable. This has to be a dream, right? That we're going to wake up sooner or later. Pinch and may, pinch, I'm going to pinch myself to see if it's really true or not, that I'm, if I'm sleeping or not. But it was no dream at all. It was reality. Even as God had turned the captivity of Job, we read about in chapter 42, verse 10 of Job, he has turned the captivity of Israel and Judah here. He has, he has turned their captivity. He goes on to say in verse 2, Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. Man, what joy they're experiencing now. What rejoicing they're, 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 they're having. And, and why not, right? I mean, they had, del they had experienced a miraculous, marvelous deliverance. How else could they react, right? They laughed. They sang praises. David says in Psalm 40, verse 2 and 3, He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And hath, he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. So great was their deliverance here in Psalm chapter 26, the deliverance that's being spoken of, that the Bible tells us that their rejoicing and their singing and, and their, their, their just jubilance was re recognized even by the heathen. I mean, the lost nations around them couldn't help but notice, the Lord hath done great things for them. And that's how it ought to be in our lives too, huh? He goes on in verse 3, The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. <laughs> they recognized, get this, the source of their deliverance. And they were glad. The source of their deliverance. How quickly we attribute successes to our own ingenuity, to our own effort, to our own ability, right? I mean, we want to take credit so often for what we've done or the successes we've enjoyed. But the fact is, is that Israel understood there was no way, humanly speaking, that they were delivered out of this oppression, this captivity, or possibly from this army that they, we could have possibly been speaking of, except it be a supernatural, miraculous deliverance from God alone. So great was their deliverance. Man, they were so, so amazingly happy. 
They knew it was humanly impossible. Every last-ditch effort had been made to somehow overcome this obstacle in their nation's history, this unmovable thing that seemed to hinder and hamper them. And yet they found themselves free at last and full of joy. Hey, this was the Lord's doing. And there is no other explanation that could be attributed to it. And their response, of course, was gladness. Then he goes on to say in verse 4, Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. (laughs) I mean, right here we see a response. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. This is, uh, this, this, the request it kind of points to, if you will, uh, the restoration of the nation now. Now that we're free, now that we're no longer under bondage, now that we've escaped this, this, the, the, the ravages of possibly this other nation, now all of a sudden we want to be restored again. The prayer is for prosperity, the stores for restoration the, the prayer is, but, but it appears that they even go somewhat beyond that. The prayer isn't only physical restoration, but there's an element of spiritual renewal that seems to be being spoken of here. The prophet Habakkuk, he would say in Habakkuk 3, 2, he'd say, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. The simple essence of this request is, send us a revival, Lord. Send us a revival, Habakkuk is crying out. A revival that would spiritually awaken a nation that had rebelled against God to the point of demanding, requiring that they go into a 70-year captivity. A revival that would shake the nation and align it perfectly with God and His work and His will. A revival that would transform the hearts, the minds of every single citizen and produce a a spirit of obedience and holiness in their hearts. Such a revival never came, though. Nor are there signs of such a revival in the dismal spiritual horizons of our day. As we look across the horizon of our present day, we don't see a lot of evidence of revival, do we? And yet, that needs to be our prayer, too. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They had experienced physical captivity. While on the other hand, you and I, we struggle to even feel that pain. Why? Because ours is a spiritual bondage. And I know that you may have difficulties you face and you may feel that there's oppression all around you, but the truth is, compared to what they had endured under the captivity, potentially, of of that other nation after being driven out of their own land and from their own homes and place in a land that they knew nothing of, or possibly being under the oppression of an army of 185,000 Assyrians, already creating starvation and hunger and people dying in the streets and folks even to the point of eating their own children. Let me tell you something. We don't know what that's like in America. And can I tell you that they had a very physical, physical captivity and it caused them to feel the pain of that. We struggle to feel that pain because ours is spiritual. It's different. Sometimes it goes on unbeknownst of us. See, we have plenty of food to eat and water to drink, but there's a famine in the land for the word of God. They were slaves to human taskmasters. We are slaves to vice, to lust, and to envy. These are our taskmasters. 
They had no power over their captors. But we are powerless to overcome the tempter today. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, and send us a spiritual awakening that will revive the church, that will reach our wayward children, that will convert thousands of unsaved people to Christ, that will thoroughly cleanse our land from its sin. Again, their request was to send a revival of spiritual renewal. But there's a price to be paid for revival. Revival doesn't just happen, does it? There are spiritual laws that, well, bring it to pass. How many of you possibly remember the old classic science fair project of making an active volcano? You know, somebody always was the genius in class. And, you know, here's science fair time. You know, we're doing stupid little things with strings and balls and all kinds of stuff. And they bring in a big volcano. We're like, wow. And all of a sudden, at some point, they're going to make that volcano just flow with lava, right? It's crazy. It was so cool. Well, you got to first make a plaster of Paris volcano. Then you got to mix some vinegar, dishwashing liquid, and a few drops of water and red food coloring into a plastic cup. You put one teaspoon, or possibly a little more if you're daring, of arm and hammer baking soda in a little plastic cup. You put that cup in the volcano, right down in the heart of that volcano. And then you take that vinegar mixture that you just created and you pour it swiftly and quickly right on the top of that baking soda. And let me tell you something, it is going to cause a chemical reaction that will amaze all watching. Even as physical laws cause certain reactions, spiritual laws do the same. If we want to see God do something miraculous, we're going to have to put the right recipe in place. Again, the cost of revival is high, far higher than most of us ever want to consider, but we've got to follow the recipe if we hope to enjoy the result. And the request is made. And so there's a reply. And it's pretty simple, isn't it? We find it in verse 5 and verse 6. And he says, For they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I believe we find the basis for revival in our passage. Uh, the most fundamental elements of revival, I believe, are on display here in chapter 126, verses 5 and 6. Oh, we use these passages as soul-winning verses, and they are indeed. But can I tell you, I believe they lay a foundation for what we would call revival. You say, what does it tell us then? What is this recipe? Well, I believe that, number one, if we're going to see revival... There has to be a time for weeping. A time for weeping. He says, they that sow in tears. He goes on to say, he that goeth forth and weepeth. Now note the promised outcome. When one sows in tears and goes forth weeping, the passage in the word of God tells us, they shall reap in joy and doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. That's what he says. That's what the passage says. 
There are those lost in sin all around us. All we need to do is step outside the door and, boy, we look around us and there is a world in need of Jesus Christ. Without a doubt, that is the case. Someone needs to care. It's been said, Jesus shed His blood. Surely we can shed some tears. Paul could say to the Ephesians that he had warned them night and day with tears. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Up to this point, you haven't had to do a whole lot with the Bible, have you? Except just look where you started. But notice what it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Paul the Apostle again speaking. And notice, uh, man, this is, this is really good. He goes on to say in chapter 20, verse 31 of Acts, he says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day, watch this, with tears. You know, you know he says, listen now, you are living testimony, you saw it firsthand for three years. I went about preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel truth, telling you about Jesus Christ. He goes, man, I was clear. And I mean, it was at night and it was at day. I mean, I spent all kind of hours. It wasn't a matter if it's in the morning, the afternoon, or the night. I was out there giving you the truth of the gospel. But notice how. He said, with tears. Can you imagine today if Pastor O'Donnell stood in a pulpit and he preached, and he preached with tears in his eyes? He preached with passion. He preached with urgency. He proclaimed the truth of the gospel with a burden in his heart and in his soul for the lost. And it brought him to tears as he thought about their eventual end without Jesus Christ. Years ago, a young minister visited Dundee, Scotland. He was deeply concerned about his ministry and concerned about, well, the lack of results that he's seen. He, he wanted God to do more, and he just couldn't figure out why there were such meager results. And he decided to visit the scene, some uh, scene where years before, a man by the name of Robert Murray McShay had ministered in such power in the person of the Holy Ghost. McShay died at the age of 30. but not before he had moved Scotland. The visitor asked the old sexton at St. Peter's if he could tell him the secret of the amazing influence of Robert McShay. The old man led the young minister into the vestry, and he said, uh, Sir, sit down there, please. Now, put your face in your hands. The visitor did exactly what he was told. Yes, he says, but he's, he goes, yep, that, that, that's right. That's the way McShay used to do it. Now, again, put your hands in your, no, just keep your face in your hands. O okay. And then he said this, now let the tears flow. That was the way McShay used to do it, said the sexton. He that goeth forth weeping 
Let's be honest, the truth is, the trouble is, if you will, that there's not a whole lot of tears anymore. Oh, we have tears for pain in our own life, tears for pain in our families, tears for pain that we feel in our bodies, but we have very little tears over the agony that we feel for those that are lost without Jesus Christ and their eternal end. In John chapter 11, verse 35, the Bible states that Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. If you give a teenager the option, say, listen, everybody's got to learn a memory verse. Uh, choose whichever one you want out of the Bible. Well, I'm going to do John chapter, we'll see. Hmm. Jesus wept. I got that one down, 1135. Jesus wept. That's, that's cheating. No, well, not really. It's a verse in the Bible. Three times in the Gospels. We're told that he wept. Matter of fact, strong crying and tears in Hebrews 5, 7 is the Holy Spirit's description. But Jesus wept for a man. We know that. He stood, on the, he stood, he stood there before a, a dead man and before his friends. There he was in front of Lazarus' tomb, sensing the heartbreak, sensing the turmoil, the trouble in the hearts of men and women. Jesus there stood and wept knowing that in a very, just a short time, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but yet he still wept. He wept at the sorrow and the agony and the anguish of the sin that brought about death. Oh, sin brings death. And he wept for the people of brokenness. Do we ever weep for people because of the consequences of sin, the death that it brings in their lives and in their future, their eternal life? Hey, Jesus wept for a nation. We see Jesus standing on a mountaintop outside the city, weeping for a nation that had rejected him. He could see the future. He knew exactly what they were going to face not long after, knowing that in a moment he would perform, I mean, it, it just that he was going to go to Calvary, that he was going to, to suffer, bleed, and die. But he also knew that they were going to reject him. And he wept because a nation that had received so many blessings could be so stubborn, so foolish that it would reject him. He couldn't believe that. He wept for them. He wept for the world once. And I'm sure he wept many other times, but it's recorded in Scripture. We see in Gethsemane the tears rolled down, mingled with blood. So great was his agony as he thought of a lost and condemned world. So Jesus himself wept for a man, he wept for a nation, he wept for the world. And the Bible says that we're to be like Christ Jesus. We're to have the mind of Christ. Jesus Christ left glory and he came to this earth and he gave up all of his riches to walk the dusty trails of Galilee. Why? Because he recognized the need. So great was the need that he was willing to literally sacrifice himself. On our behalf, not just a mere man, but God-man, the creator of the universe, the creator of all of us. He took our place and paid for our sin. And he did it with a tear in his eye because he had such great compassion and love. If we're going to see revival and experience spiritual renewal, we need a time of weeping. We need tears. But we also need a time for reaping. 
Again, in our passage, it says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. But before the reaping, first comes the sowing, right? Bearing precious seed. Boy, everybody's got a message today, don't they? It doesn't matter where you turn. Go to social media, go to television, go to the radio, go everywhere and anywhere you want. But the fact is, everybody's got a message. Everybody's got a cause. But can I tell you, ours is not to raise our own banner. It's not to raise our own cause. It is to bear the precious seed of the Word of God. There is power in a seed, by the way. There is life in a seed. You know, when a seed is planted, it takes root in the ground, and ultimately, many times, it'll produce even a tree. And the roots of that tree can even destroy foundations and crack concrete. Hey, that's a powerful seed. And that is how the Word of God is described. As a matter of fact, it's likened unto a double-edged sword over in the book of Hebrews. It's likened unto fire in Jeremiah. It's likened unto a hammer in Jeremiah as well. I mean, we see that double-edged sword cutting deep and bringing about change. We see that fire spreading quickly. We recognize that hammer. It hits sin hard and drives home truth. In our passage, the Word of God is likened to a seed, though. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 14, the Bible says, a sower soweth the Word. In Isaiah 55, 11, we see that so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in a thing whereunto I send it. Hey, there's power in the word of God. There's power to overcome all opposition. We must go out spreading the word and planting the seed. We must broadcast the gospel. You say, but what if people don't receive it? What if they don't want to hear? Well, that's not our concern, is it? That's God's concern. But can I tell you, He's able to take care of it. Again, our passage points out that when it says, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. God doesn't promise that everyone we speak to is going to show up and be saved. He doesn't promise that they're all going to respond the way we would like them to. But he does promise that sooner or later, if we'll stay faithful to the calling, if we'll just continue to sow the seed, that he will come and, and, and he will give us, he's going to give us a harvest. God's going to bring those sheaves and it's going to be harvest time sooner or later. Man, it may not be in our lifetime even, and I don't mean to discourage you, but some of us just got to get out there and sow some seed and let the God of heaven to water and therefore then it can take root and ultimately even in the next 5, 10, 15 or 20 years we see those roots taking deep uh, uh, ground and, and really taking root and before we know it there's a plant Bringing forth. And then there's a tree springing forth. And then there is some fruit. We can't just think about our day. We have to recognize that this is an eternal work we do. I made a statement years ago when obedience is coupled with a promise, results are the outcome. Can I tell you that too many times we are obedient but what are we obedient to we need to be obedient to the promises of God we need to be doing things God's way and when we are obedient and it is coupled with the, a promise can I tell you there are results that will come about Barry Goldwater he was a five-time senator from Arizona 
And he was also a presidential nominee in 1964, a long time ago. He once said this, he said, the political battles of this generation will be won on the doorstep. The political battles of this generation will be won on the doorstep. Can I tell you that that is where the harvest is today, on the doorstep? The early church understood this simple truth. In Acts 5.42, the Bible says, And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Notice, and in every house. Man, they took the gospel to the doorstep. And I understand today we have a lot of other opportunities and means by which to give the gospel out. And may I say we ought to take every opportunity to do so. But we cannot stop carrying the gospel physically to doors. And we cannot stop carrying the gospel in any stretch of the imagination, any other way. We just got to keep giving it out consistently and continually. There is a gospel, and that gospel saves, and that gospel delivers people from bondage. And can I tell you, even as those children of Israel were in captivity, and what they needed more than anyone or anything was God himself, we need God today more than anything else. There's nothing we need more than him. We need technology. We need God more. We need better paying jobs. We need God more. We need better relationships. We need God more. We need God And may I say today that here we are gathered in this church house and in two weeks from now we'll start a revival, so to speak, under a tent. Can I tell you, we got to prepare for that. We need to ready ourselves and we need to know that we have a neighborhood and we have family and friends and co-workers and fellow students that don't know Jesus Christ. we got to tell them to be under that tent to hear the truth of the gospel. If we hope to see revival, it will require a time of weeping and a time of reaping. We've got to be willing to shed some tears of concern and share the gospel of Christ with others. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's ask ourselves a question and nobody answer out loud, please. But, but how or when was the last time you literally cried over the soul of someone? Now, let's make that even probably a a little more difficult. When's the last time you or I prayed over the soul and wept over a soul that wasn't our immediate family? He that goeth forth and weepeth, boy, there's the challenge. And if we will plant and water the seed, God will guarantee the harvest. That's the reaping. In 1 Corinthians 3, 7, turn there, would you, as we begin to wind this down and close it out. First Corinthians 3, 7. There in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, we read, So then neither he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Some would say, well, you know what? You can't organize revival. You can't organize it. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Okay. You know what? I, I kind of agree with that to some degree. But hold on. Let me just quote from a fellow by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. 
a great preacher of the past. He said, revival cannot be organized, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. Man, let's set our sails. Set our sails toward heaven. Let's prepare our hearts and ready our minds to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and to receive the teachings of the word of God that they can inspire us to do a supernatural work in the world we live in and truly make a difference in the lives of others. we got to be willing to water the seed with our tears and God will provide a harvest. It's been said, the kingdom of God is not going to advance by our churches becoming filled with men but by men in our churches becoming filled with God. Can I tell you that men being filled with God don't act one way here and another way here. They'll act one way in Sunday school and another place in the work, another way in the workplace. Man, we need a, a, a group of men and women that are going to be consistently for God. Man, in and out of the pulpit, in and out of the Sunday school classrooms, in and out of the choir. We need young men, young ladies, older men, older ladies that say, listen, I want God to do something in my life that will change me for good and for God. It begins, obviously, with our salvation. If you haven't gotten that one settled, you need to today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, go ahead and turn there. You might even, I don't know, have part of this memorized, but maybe today there's never been a time, a place when you personally acknowledged and received Christ as your Savior. I was speaking with a man just this morning, and a wonderful guy sat down. I was at a McDonald's, and he said, listen, preach to me, preacher. I said, okay. And I asked him about his salvation, and again, I'm, I'm a little concerned. He's a wonderful guy. But he made a statement that concerned me a little bit. He said, well, I've always believed. Believed. He said, you know, God and believed in the Lord, and I know, that we're, I know we're sinners. I understand all that. And I thought, well, that's good, but it concerned me a little bit. Notice what the Bible says here. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here's what I want to say. There has to come a point or a time in your life when you are purchased. You've got to be bought. You are sold into sin and slavery of Satan and sinfulness, wicked and evil. We are born into that sin, we'll live in that sin, and we will die in that sin that ultimately we must pay for. And the only way you and I can pay for that sin is to be eternally separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire. But can I tell you that 2,000 years ago, God himself left heaven. He became a man. But not just an ordinary man. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was both all God and all man 
at the same time. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He didn't just say, oh, well, he, it, could he, is it possible that as a child he sinned? The Bible just says, all I know is the Bible says this, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus never once wittingly sinned a lick. Jesus never sinned according to the Bible. He was perfect and holy and sinless. He was righteous. Man, his mama thought she hit the jackpot. And she did hit the jackpot in one sense. But I don't know if I'd be feeling too comfortable being the parent of God. But nonetheless, he was sinless and perfect. And do you know what he did? He literally paid the penalty of sin, which the Bible says is death. This God-man, Jesus Christ, who is creator of all the universe, literally left heaven and came to earth and took his place on this celestial globe, walked in those dusty trails and literally surrendered and submitted to the cries of the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. And there he allowed them. He submitted willingly because he knew all along why he came. Can I tell you why he came? He came for you. And he came for me. That's what I know for a fact. He came for you and he came for me. And can I tell you that he took your place and he took my place on that cross. And we have a cross here today and it's just a simple little cross. But let me tell you, just symbolically, he was willing to be nailed to a cross. And there he suffered, bled and died between heaven and earth, bearing the shame, the reproach of all sinful humanity. The Bible says bearing our sin in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Today, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ alone, it's, listen, it's not enough to have been raised to believe in God. It's not enough that you had believing parents or grandparents. It is not enough that you feel pretty good about yourself. It is not enough that you try to live a good life and help others. You have to personally take the journey to Calvary. And you've got to come to the place where you see yourself as the sinner that should have been on that cross. You deserve to die, but you don't have to because Jesus took your place and you fall on your face before God and you humble your heart before a holy, righteous Savior. And you say, oh, Lord Jesus, I deserve that. I deserve to die. But you took my place. And I receive and accept you as my Savior. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for dying in my place. A sacrificial lamb providing a substitutionary death, offering a supernatural transition called salvation. That's what you need today. Will you trust Christ? Will you do that this morning? Will you take that journey? Because it's not a matter of, I just have always believed. No, you have to make a decision at the cross and accept and receive Jesus. And for you that know Christ, let's take to our prayer closets and shed some tears over the lost.
Let's take the gospel to the streets and to every creature. Let's raise the banner of God's love high at work, at school, and in our communities. Let's get our friends, our families, our co-workers, our fellow students, our neighbors under that tent in the next two weeks. Let's take some steps to revival. A time of weeping. A time of reaping. Father, we need you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership today, and we just pray that you'll just work in our lives. And Lord, today, there may be someone here that, oh, good person, a good person from the the standpoint of humanity, comparing ourselves among ourselves, oh, a good person. But Lord, good's not enough. They have to be in Christ Jesus. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would work in each heart and each life today. And if someone has never taken that personal journey to Calvary, if they have never received and accepted Christ personally, that, Lord, they would say, I want to know more. I've got to understand what he's talking about. And and somebody, Lord, let them take up Scripture today and show them. Father, for the believer, may we make a point to say, I'm going to start asking God to give me a passion for souls, a desire to see people saved. I want to be able to think of the lost and have a tear in my eye. Oh, God, help us, we pray. We're going to start the music in just a moment. And when we do, if you've never settled your soul salvation or if you have just thought, well, I'm a good guy, I'm a good gal, I've done all that I think I can do, let me tell you, you you want to come to the cross today and humble yourself before Jesus. Why don't you do that this morning? Come and listen from the Word of God, we'll have somebody take a Bible and show you some precious promises. Remember, remember what I said earlier. It's pretty simple. When obedience is coupled with a promise, results are the outcome. When you will obey the call of God in your life and you can attach it to a promise in the Word of God, I'm telling you now, you're going to like the outcome. You're going to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. He's going to know you as His child and you're going to have heaven as your home. Won't you come today? Father, bless this invitation in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, every head.